Welcome to the second episode of Rewind's look into the 25th anniversary of Silverchair's debut album Frogstomp, brought to you by the Handshake Agency. I'm Steve Bell, and in the first episode we took a look at the lead-in to Frogstomp, specifically how the Tomorrow single transformed three Newcastle schoolmates from complete unknowns into household names in the space of four short months. As innocent criminals, the trio had won the SBS program Nomad's Pick Me competition in June of 94, the prize of which found them re-recording the winning track, Tomorrow, with Phil McKellar of Triple J. The immediate industry buzz around this track led to a small bidding war after which innocent criminals were signed to new Sony imprint Murmur, chiefly due to the frenzied enthusiasm of Sony's John Watson and Murmur head John O'Donnell, and renamed Silverchair, with their debut EP Tomorrow released the following September. With the title track single Ubiquitous on radio and TV, about five weeks later it hit the top of the Australian singles charts, where it would stay for six weeks, and another month after that it received its first of four eventual platinum accreditations. Crazy times, and that's not even considering that at this stage frontman Daniel is 15, and his bandmates drummer Ben and bassist Chris are still 14, which in a lot of ways makes this achievement freaking incredible. People are going apeshit for this band, and it's all organic. If anything, the label have been trying to rein in the hype because they have their eye on a longer game. For drummer Ben Gillies and his bandmates, the runaway success of Tomorrow didn't add any more pressure to back it up with their debut album. They were too busy just going with the flow. I mean, in hindsight, obviously, with a little bit of age under your belt, you realise that being so young was probably an advantage because, one, we were really naive, but two, like, our priorities weren't, you know, so much about, you know, how many albums we're going to sing or how many movies we're going to make. It was, it was about the music and and just having a good time. And for that reason, I think we were unaware of all the other factors at play. So, yeah, I mean, personally, I didn't, I didn't really feel like, you know, that we now have to, um, you know, back it up and do something amazing. Like, you know, we wanted to, but, um, you know, I, I don't think initially with the Tomorrow EP or even with Rockstop that, you know, we, we were we were projecting too far into the future. We were just kind of riding the wave at the time. And by this time it wasn't just in the charts that things were going crazy for Silverchair. Being forced to plan their sporadic gigs and tours around high school commitments meant that anticipation for the shows that did happen became feverish amongst their fervent, predominantly young followers. The gigs turning into riotous frenzies of youthful enthusiasm and vigour. Filmmaker Robert Hambling, who'd been a judge in the Pick Me competition and made the original film clip for Tomorrow as part of the prize, as well as going on to do some more behind-the-scenes film work for the band, remembers shooting Silverchair's gig at much-missed Sydney venue The Phoenician Club for the Pure Massacre clip about a week before Christmas in 94 and having front row, or as it turned out, balcony, seats for the chaos that ensued. So then they turned round and, um, um, as record label and, thing, and asked if I wanted to do uh, uh, you know, a couple more clips. And in the meantime, I, I'd done it, I'd done, tomorrow I'd done the, I done press kit. And I did the press kits for them all the way through their albums, actually. And where you know you go up and shoot them in the studio and film, them and then shoot shoot them talking to camera in, in various locations, and you put it together and you give it give it to, to to TV stations and stuff, and they either pull it apart or play the whole thing or something. But that was quite funny because again, they're very young kids. It's, it's no point sort of saying, well, you know. Uh, tell us about your life, and you go. Well, we live at home with mum, and you know it's you know, so really you sort of you've got to avoid all that. So you, you're sort of you know what's the song about? Oh, I don't know really. You know it's all that stuff. You go okay, great. So you run around that pole, and I'll film you, and we'll do, we'll do something. You know, um, but it was funny because for me, even though they weren't like that, it reminded me. Of, I don't know if have you seen. Um, interviews and stuff with the uh, uh, the sort of British punk movement of the early 70s not so much the Pistols but the the lesser known bands who were like just like oh, I went on a, you know to down a King's Road you know we did and we made an album yesterday morning we put it out in the afternoon but when we'll do another one tomorrow <laughs> you know there was an element of that which I really liked about them they really weren't precious um I think they must have really known they were pretty good. I mean, there's a level of confidence, but they didn't. That that wasn't how it came across. There was nothing arrogant about them. 
I like them a lot, actually. I think I think they were talented, and I think Daniel is a. That was I think that's the really the strong thing about Daniel in the sense of, you know, he is he's a talent. He's 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 gifted, and uh, it's a difficult thing to deal with being gifted. Um, so you know, um, you just people didn't people weren't expecting it to come out of Newcastle. So anyway, uh, Silverchair did some gigs and stuff, and they sort of went with it. They did a couple of you know pubs and things like that, which were just insane because they were on a stage that was you know twelve inches off the ground, surrounded by screaming children that probably shouldn't have been in the pub because they weren't allowed to drink. But um, they did very well, and but it was mayhem. But as I said, when we did. Um, yeah, Pure Massacre at the Phoenician Club, which I don't think exists anymore, but that was a three-tiered building. Um, so it looked a bit like Thunderdome or something, but it was, and we filmed them there, and people were diving. We had to stop. At one point, we had to pull someone. I was up on the top balcony filming down with my Super 8 camera. I shot the whole thing on Super 8, and someone came past me and climbed up on the edge, and he was going to stage dive off a three-story high balcony into a crowd and I managed to grab hold of his shirt and then someone came over and grabbed his belt and yanked him back. But just for a moment, I thought, Oh God, you know, here we are with three 15 year old kids on a stage and I film someone dying as he hits the floor, you know? Um, but fortunately, <laughs> um, actually, I think that same guy did go on and break his leg. Actually, he was, you know, he was, uh, I think he was pharma- pharmaceutically assisted <laughs> as they say. Um, but that was an amazing evening because for me, I, I, you know, you never know how these things, I don't know quite how these things, they can explode, can't they? I mean, they were actually a teen band that won a competition. Well, on paper, that's that's not a great combination. You know, it's a burn bright, fizzle quick, and no one ever thinks remembers them sort of thing. So, I, I mean, I assume they weren't going to do that, but you couldn't tell. But that, that night at the Phoenician, it was like, no, they're, they're in a completely different league. They're going to survive all that that criticism easily. And the crowd went nuts. I mean, it was a mosh pit from the front to the back. And the energy in the room was like one of those, you know, few moments um, where you just go, wow, wow, this is. And um, and then we, uh, yeah, then, then, I mean, I think it's the, the rest, I think, is sort of a series of, sh- of gigs and statistics that just kept exponentially getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and it was it was a really it was a great thing to be part of. It really did feel energized and 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 you know they were being looked after by people that weren't going to exploit them. And I don't know, it just felt it felt good. By this time, John Watson, the Sony A&R rep who'd helped sign Silverchair after hearing Tomorrow and seeing a solitary midweek gig in a tiny pub roughly six months earlier, had begun acting as the band's de facto manager, a role which would very soon be formalised, and one which put him in the envious position of having a foot in both camps during the planning stage of the album. So we signed the band uh, in sort of about the July or thereabouts of 1994, um, and Tomorrow came out not too long after that. Um, by the Christmas of that year, um, by the time they in the middle of recording Frog Stomp, the end of 94, start of 95, um, we started to have the first conversations with, you know, I started to have the first conversations with the, um, the band and the, and the mums about possibly taking on a management role. Um, and by sort of some point early 95, we knew that, that was what was going to happen. Um, however, I was in this very unusual situation where in addition to doing A&R, I was also doing international marketing. So it was my job to get all the other Sony affiliates around the world fired up about Silverchair and get them to release their music. So I sort of had every manager's dream, which was that I was inside the record company um, and able to you know, really make a difference on behalf of the band um, in a way that you wouldn't if you were outside and work for Sony's benefit too. So I didn't end up formally kind of... Um, you know, announcing that I was leaving until the middle of 95. Um, but there was probably a six-month period there where, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, I knew, and I'm, I think many of the people around me knew, that that's where things were headed. But in the early days of the band, in, in fairness to all the other people involved, it was kind of management by committee. Um, the you know, Everybody stepped up to do more than what their usual role was. John and I were much more than the record company, um, as was Susan. 
Um, Owen Orford, who was the band's booking agent, um, took on a lot of extra responsibilities. Brett Oaten, their lawyer, took on a lot of extra responsibilities. And the mums were also very involved in um, you know, helping kind of look after the band's you know, personal well-being. Um, so in addition to the band themselves obviously having strong views about things, there was a real management by committee over that first um, you know, probably eight or nine months before um, I formally started managing the band. And from that point forward, everybody still had a, had a viewpoint, but it was um, you know, not quite as informal as it had been in the, in the previous period. The pressing task at hand for the team at this juncture was to organise and oversee the actual Frog Stomp sessions. It was decided that the album would be helmed by South African-born producer Kevin Caveman Shirley at Festival Studios in the inner city suburb of Piermont over the Christmas period of 1994. John Watson continues. It was recorded over the band's summer holidays um, and it was recorded really quickly. Um, initially, so the first, the Tomorrow EP had been recorded with Phil McCullough um, and at Triple J, but he was sort of the house person for the ABC, so you know, going and doing a whole album with him at that point wasn't really an option. And um, we knew Kevin Shirley from around the traps, and Kevin's just a big kid himself. He's also the fastest engineer you'll ever see. He can pull a great sound in 20 minutes. And of course, the band had classic teenage attention spans. You really need somebody who could, you know, capture lightning in a bottle. You know, they weren't going to do 20 takes of anything. They were going to do three, and they were going to go and need to ride their skateboard for a bit because they'd be bored. So Kevin was brilliant at, at that, at being ready when they were ready and capturing the spirit of it and not polishing the edges off and sort of making it fun for them because, as I say, he was, he's a big kid like them. Um, so he um, he was a big part of making that possible. We we did a little tryout with Kevin just to make sure he was right, you know, which was the recording of Pure Massacre. Um, and they went in for a day um, to track that song. And most artists, of course, would take, you know, two or three days to record a song and a day to mix it. Um, we came back near the end of the day. Not only had Kevin recorded Pure Massacre, he'd also recorded Leave Me Out and he was close to having finished mixed both of them. Um, so, you know, which speaks to the band's musicality as well, that they were able to nail those performances so quickly, but also to Kevin's sonic ability that he was able to get it sounding that good that fast, you know, and that was when we knew, okay, this is obviously the right guy to make the album. So they recorded the album in about a week. Um, it ended up going for a few extra days because Daniel lost his voice because he, you know, was singing every day. And so they had to take a break for a few weeks and then come back in, um, sort of, I think, in the break between Christmas and New Year, from memory, um, and do a couple of extra days of vocals to pick up the bits where Daniel had lost his voice. Um, and uh, it was while he was staying at my place while the um, while doing those vocals, and I was looking for an album title. I remember him flicking through um, all, the, all the CDs we had laying around, and there was a box set um, of Stax soul songs from the 60s. And he was looking at the titles, and one of them was called Frog Something. Went, that'd be a, a cool title, added it to the list. And, you know, once the guys had finished talking about it, that was the one that was left standing. So, um, you know, I vividly recall him having that exact moment and sort of scribbling on a post-it note along with two or three other ideas. Do you remember being, or there being much discussion about the track list? Did that pretty much pick itself? You said those songs have been around for a while. So most of the songs were in existence before um, we signed the band. Israel's Son was um, written just after we'd signed them. I remember they played it for the first time. Uh, we did a, a showcase uh, during a Sony conference where they were the, the hot new signing and you know everybody sort of wanted to see them play. And they unveiled Israel's Son. I remember Dennis getting so excited he smashed a glass against the wall. Um, <laughs> and um, they also, I remember uh, that we had taken... Um, the guys to see UMI um, who were just kicking around on I think Sound As Ever was out by then um, and I don't think Hi-Fi Way was, I think that was later um, and that we took them to a gig and Daniel loved it, absolutely loved the band and went home and wrote Find A Way, um, I think very much inspired by that UMI show It's got you can hear the UMI influence in that song I think um, I think Mad Men came late. Mad Men was a song that they largely came up with in the studio, I think, which is why it was sort of instrumental that didn't have lyrics. And there was one other song that was from the previous batch of tunes, you know, I said sort of the more 
traditional rock songs, uh, a song called Never Near Your Powers, that they started to record and then kind of ditched because even though it was quite catchy, it just didn't have the same spirit as the rest of the songs. It sounded like a different band. So that was the only real outtake. Um, but otherwise, yeah, the rest of the songs were, you know, that backbone of, of Tomorrow, Pure Massacre, Suicidal Dream, um, Shade, Leave Me Out. Um, all of those songs were there the first time we saw the band play Jules Tavern. From the band's perspective, Ben also agrees that not a lot of sleep was lost over the track listing, with most of the songs that came into Compromise Frog Stomp pretty much picking themselves. Yeah, it was pretty obvious. I think we didn't have that many original songs, so, you know, it's not like we had a catalogue of, like, 30 songs that we had to boil down to, the, you know, the top 10. Um, there was probably only, like, maybe... Um, we probably only had like 12 originals. So, and I even remember with Madman, I mean, Madman came out of a jam as well. It was just like a, I think Dan had a bit of a guitar riff and he said, oh, check this out. And then um, I think the producer was there and we just started kind of all playing together and it just became a, a track on the album. If we hadn't made Fox Stomp, but we still went on to become a band, what I imagine would have happened is you know, over 12 months or a couple of years, a lot of that, those tracks probably would have died out. But the, you know, the really strong ones would have boiled to the top. And, um, you know, we probably would have done some other piece of music, but, you know, with maybe five or six of those tracks, but some, you know, maybe four or five other new ones um, that were more up to par. But, you know, that wasn't meant to be. That, that Those tracks are the, the tracks that were supposed to be on prog stuff. Well, it went pretty well. I wouldn't second guess it too much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's like it's kind of like sliding doors. Like you just never know. You, know, you can you you can look back and go, "What if?" But it really doesn't matter because that isn't what happened. What you know, they, they were the tracks that were supposed to be on the record, and you know, if they're the only ones we had off our sleeve, then and and that's fine. It doesn't matter. It's just a kind of like a it's like a stamp in time, and um, you know, you look back and you go, "Yeah, cool." Well, that's what I was thinking and feeling and that's what I was excited about at the time. And, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's, it doesn't do anyone any favours to look back and go, oh, geez, I wish I could change this or do this differently. It's like, well, you know, that's what happened and you should be proud of it. And, and um, I mean, particularly for us with Foxtop, like it's, like it really, it, it, it catapulted us into a, you know, a, a really successful career. Producer Kevin Shirley eventually captured the band's live intensity perfectly on Frog Stomp. But as John Watson mentioned earlier, he first had to pass an audition of sorts by recording Pure Massacre for single release to make sure he and the band could build a workable rapport. At this point, it was just another in a long line of recording sessions for Shirley, who at that stage, like pretty much everyone else, only knew Silverchair by hearing the ubiquitous tomorrow dominating the Australian airwaves. I was driving into the city and I heard I was listening to Triple J. I'm sure it was Triple J or Double J. I'm not sure which what, which it was back then. So that would have been in like about 93, I suppose. Uh, 94, I reckon. Maybe 94. Um, I think we did the record in 94. Do, yeah, Christmas. We did the record in 94, though, didn't we? Yeah, 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 yeah. So it would have been earlier on that same year. Yeah. So I think it was either... 93 or early 94. Mm. But I remember hearing them and I thought they sounded cool. I really liked, I thought they sounded really interesting. And I had called, uh, I remember I called uh, Chris Gilby, who used to run the publishing company in Sydney. And I said, man, you got to hear these guys. They're really cool. So, uh, so their single went big. I think Phil McCurcher recorded the first single with, and and then uh, Nick Lorne edited it, as I recall. And that was the song that was really big and on the radio. That was the first version of Tomorrow. And then, uh, and then for whatever reason, they Nick couldn't do anything, and I think that they Phil was working for the ABC. I think he probably still is. And um, so they asked me if I would do something. I think what they knew that I liked to do was capture some energy on the floor while cutting a record. 
And so the two Johns, John Watson and John O'Donnell, asked me to go into the studio and uh, just cut one more song with them. And so we went into the studio at Festival Studios in Sydney and we cut two songs. We cut one song on Saturday and Sunday. We cut two songs on Saturday and Sunday. We did uh, Pure Massacre and then we did Leave Me Out. I thought, why not do two? Because So we did two songs in those two days. And I guess they were really happy with the way they were going. And so, you know, we moved on and did the rest of the record. Did you have an agenda for what you wanted from the sessions, um, you know, in terms of how you're going to approach it and, and the results and everything? That's interesting because, um, you know, the, the, the bottom line is there were three 14-year-old kids there. And I think maybe, uh, you know, Daniel was definitely more accomplished than the other two guys, but not by a lot. I think uh, Ben and... Uh, and Chris, I think Chris had only been playing for about a year and a half or so when he started playing with them. So, um, so we went into the studio, and it's you know it's, and you know, I knew I had to make a record, so I did whatever I could to make the record, and you know it's um, it's uh. Uh, you know, I, I just, I knew I had to go and make a record and, and I'd been making records. Well, when was, so that was 95. I mean, I'd been making records for a while already. So, you know, I hadn't worked with any, I mean, who would I worked with by then? Bon Jovi, maybe. I'd worked with a few big bands, Baby Animals in 89 and Angels before that. And um, so, you know, I knew how to make a record. And so I went in and made a record and you know, it's not quite as live as, I mean, it's a, it's a live record, but it's not exactly as they played it, to be honest, because they were three 14 year olds. So, um, but you know, I knew that they had their influences and I knew that they liked, uh, Nirvana and I knew they liked, uh, Soundgarden and Helmet even. And, um, so I didn't want, I wanted them just to wear their influences and, 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 uh, you know, I enjoyed it. They were, they, they just were right at the time and there was nothing going on with the rest of those bands. And they came along with some of that, you know, teenage spirit. And it was, uh, it was, uh, just the right band at the right time, I think. Not just the the guys being young, but being so inexperienced in the studio must've had a whole heap of challenges for you. Unique challenges, I guess. Well, you know, I mean, I, it's one of the things you do when you're growing up making records is you work with average musicians and you have to find ways to make them sound better than they can. So it's, it wasn't anything I hadn't done before. Um, you know, and that's not arrogant. That's just the, what the nature of the job, you know, you have, you take a band and you try and make them sound as good as they can, can. you know, there's no point in just, having them play and capture it because, you know, they were not really accomplished enough to be on a world stage, but they weren't far off. But, you know, you have to just make a record, that's all. It's funny because so many people love that record. I mean, I think that, I think that, you know, I got to work with Iron Maiden because Steve Harris really loved that record. So um, it obviously resonated with a lot of different people from a lot of different places you know the sessions were all done and dusted in just nine days a relatively short time for an album in the overall scheme of things but ben reckons that this wasn't an issue because despite still being relatively inexperienced in the studio the band had worked hard beforehand to fine-tune both the songs and their individual performances i think that's a really short time to make an album mm. like um, but I think for the way we were working at the time and, you know, probably our, our attention stands as well, um, that was probably the ideal length. And I think look, that we had, we'd done a lot of rehearsal. There was, uh, uh, sorry, let me say that There was a rehearsal space in Newcastle that Kevin, Kevin Shirley came up and meeted us in, um, meted us, meted <laughs> us. What the fuck? There was a... <laughs> There was a rehearsal space in Newcastle that Kevin Turner came to and met us in. And 
Um, I think we spent maybe a week doing pre-production. And the reason Kevin was so good, because it's like he didn't want to mess with the recipe too much. So he came in and just enhanced the parts that need enhancing, you know, kind of um, got rid of some of the stuff that was, wasn't didn't serve any purpose and really just uh, refined kind of what we already had, but didn't, didn't, he didn't want to kind of overproduce it and change change too much of the kind of core of what the band was and what the songs were. So um, it all happened really quickly. After we did the rehearsals with Kevin, we just, you know, I think, sorry, one, one good thing about Silverchair is we always did a lot of rehearsal, tons of rehearsal. So by the time we got to the recording process, it was basically just putting all that hard work down on tape. So... I think that's why we were able to do it in um, in such a short time is because we you know we just got in there and, and busted out the tracks and and that was it. And then you just have to uh, once you've got those dead tracks of the three of us, then it's just about doing some overdubs uh, and you know Dan doing his singing and then um, and then that was it. Like it wasn't it's not a very complicated record. Um, so yeah, you know it, it definitely lent, lent itself to. Um, being pretty, a pretty um, quick process. Do you remember if you had some sort of agenda for what you wanted from the album? Was there any sort of particular sound you were trying to pull or, or capture the live intensity or anything like that? Um, I don't really remember. I think, I think it was more after Fox Up that we started getting really interested in the production and the sounds and. But from what I recall, um, basically Kevin just – sorry, let me say it again. Basically Kevin wanted to just capture that essence of the band without, without adding too much to it. I don't, you know, I don't think we really – there wasn't too much of referencing – other bands or, you know, what's what's what are we trying to achieve here? It was basically just saying, right, get this group get this group of songs, um, get them to the best place possible, um, so they're fluid and then get in the studio and capture that sound and capture that moment. And that to me that's kind of what it, in hindsight, that's what it felt like we were trying to do. It was just you know, there was a lot of lot of excitement and and there's a lot of energy coming from all of us, you know, even from the Johns and and from everybody. Everyone was very excited. You know, we signed with Merma, which is part of Sony, and everyone was really excited. So, um, yeah, I think we were lucky that we're, we were in a position to just to be able to focus on the music and just capture this kind of, you know, a bit of a time capsule and, and of something really, really special and exciting. Kevin Shirley remembers the Frog Stomp sessions as running smoothly and being pretty informal, not surprisingly given the band's age, and containing the odd youthful indiscretion along the way, as well as some good old-fashioned sonic subterfuge on his part. They'd come into the studio and play, and the moms would bring them into the studio, and then um, the moms would go shopping. They'd come down from Newcastle, and the moms would go shopping and leave the boys with me. And... Uh, and then I'd get them to play. We'd go through the songs. We'd ha- we, I'd been up to Newcastle before, and we'd done pre-production with them. So we'd gone over the songs and said, let's change this around and let's put this part here and bits and pieces like that in some sweaty storefront um, somewhere on um, Darley, Darley Street, I think it is. And uh, and so we kind of knew where we were going. And then I'd, they'd have them play a few takes. And then... I'd edit between the takes and edit the drums between takes and try and make a track that sounded really good. So I'd leave them alone for a couple of hours and then they would play cricket in the festival, had like a a corridor next to the studio and they'd play cricket in the corridor. And, you know, it was, there were weekends we were working in. So the kids were having a blast, you know, they were just having fun. And then they're watching videos and I guess they discovered some Ron Jeremy videos, and I remember coming in saying, "I need you to come and do some overdubs." And it was like, um, "Can you wait a while? <laughs> <laughs> I can't stand up right now." 
so that was funny. The mums would go shopping and then they'd come back at five o'clock with bottles of wine and, and want to hear playbacks? Uh, you know, that's what mums do. I mean, I, I at, in that stage, and I was, I, I'd have a bottle of Jack Daniels on the console, so by the time they got there, I would be sipping <laughs> away from Jack Daniels. You know, none of none of that business anymore. But it was what we was going, what we were doing then. It was spirited. It was very cool and spirited, and a lot of energy going on. And yeah, the mums come and sit around and drink wine. That's right. I'm remembering now. It sit around and yeah, it was fun. It was a fun record. Nine days doesn't seem like a lot of time. Is that? Do you usually work quickly like that? You know, I do usually work quickly like that, and. Um, and but it was unusual for then. It's not, not that unusual now. Mm. Um, but that's pretty much what I do. I mean, I just cut a record in Nashville in three days, and I, you know, I just have uh, just the new Joe Bonamassa, which I'm mixing now. I just I cut in six days in Abbey Road. So yeah, I'm I'm kind of used to working at that pace, you know. So it wasn't that unusual, and I think that was part of the reason why that John's called me as well, because they wanted to get. They didn't want to get stuck in the studio, and and also they didn't have a big budget. They had twenty grand, I think, was the budget for the album, Australian. And so that didn't go very far, as you can well imagine. Mm. But you know, I remember I was living in, I was living on the northern beaches at the time, much like I am now. And uh, and I would get the ferry home after I'd been in the studio, and um. I felt very strongly about the record. I felt very much like there was, it had something in it. I could feel there was a gravitas in the music that was, you know, that there was, there was an intention, a bad intention in the music and there was a depth to it that belied their age really. And, And I, and I felt very, passionate about the record and about making the record i knew it was something special so if you don't often get that feeling about stuff and it's weird you know it's weird why because you know i guess i mean i never really thought tomorrow was going to be as big a single as it was anyway you know and then when we cut the version of tomorrow for the album which it, it had already been cut you know as i say for the australian market and then we cut it for the states the guys in the band were like, nah, we don't want to play that song like that anymore. We want to play it like nice and slow and sludgy and like uh, kind of Black Sabbathy. And it's like, so they so they cut it slower than they had originally cut it with Phil McCurcher. And uh, I remember going into the mastering studio. So that would have been 94 or early 95. And, um, and, I went in to the mastering studio in Sydney before I had Ted Jensen mastered. And I think I had, I went to see Don Bartley and or Leon Zerbus, one of those guys. And they'd got this new technology in where you could speed up segments of music without changing the pitch, but you could only do eight seconds at a time. So we did the whole track in eight second chunks and edited it all together. It's just to speed it up because they played it so slowly. Um, so that's pretty weird. Yeah, I've never heard of that for a whole song. That's amazing. Yeah, so all four and a half minutes of it, we did in eight minutes, eight second sections. <laughs> so we cut two eight seconds and edited it together in eight seconds and edited it together. It took a whole day of editing. Would have been easier if they just played it at the right tempo. Were they aware of this or is this sort of a secret? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. And, you know, I think that they, they left it up to me and they, you know, they, uh, I think they left it up to me. I think at that stage, you know, I mean, this was their first foray into, into, you know, corporate music. And so, you know, you have a producer and he does what he wants. I mean, you can hate him after the fact, which they pretty much did after the fact. They, uh, they pretty much, uh, had some, they had some, you know, they, they had a go at me in some interviews after the fact. So, but, you know, they became millionaires, so it's like, you know, <laughs> get over it already. John O'Donnell from Murmur also recalls the battle they had to get Silverchair to record this third version of Tomorrow. 
following the original demo and the Triple J recording that was the Australian single, which they did so that not only the production values matched the other songs on the record, but also so they had a shiny new version of the smash hit to take to overseas markets. The only problem was that by now the band was thoroughly sick of the track. You may have heard from Kevin how hard it was to get Tomorrow re-recorded. Um, and that was quite a battle because the band was playing it so slow live, quite a, quite different to most other bands who play every song, um, you know, play every song faster live than how they record it. The band inverted that and was playing it a lot slower um, live than they were from the Nomad recording way back nine months earlier. Um, and Kevin had to get them um, to kind of play as close to the original um, recording of it. So they, they wanted to track it again for the album. And Kevin, being a smart operator, wanted the um, royalty points on that song, um, you know, which is just a little footnote, but a funny one. Um, <laughs> and and um, he was right because – but he, he, he wanted it tracked as closely as possible to the original version. Um, and they were playing it a lot slower, so we had to push them and push them and push them to speed it up. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, we had – we all had kind of secret ambitions for the song Shade because it was the ballad. We thought that was a song that could have been a big song, but at the same time we also didn't want to – kind. we didn't want to go there um, – if we didn't have to. And so we got into an arm wrestle with Sony management around the world where they all wanted that song and the band kind of begrudgingly agreed for it to be a single, but then we did absolutely nothing to promote it um, quite intentionally because we didn't want to, we didn't think it was their strongest song for one thing and it was a ballad. And so we kind of went, um, yeah, we won't push that too hard. We'll hold it back. And um, that was also around the time that 16 minutes were moving in and people getting people who didn't care about rock and roll were getting excited by this Newcastle band of teenagers. And, um, and we worked against a lot of that stuff to shut it down. So by early 1995, Frogstomp was in the can, but nobody really knew how it was going to fly. John O'Donnell was of the opinion from the get-go that the recordings managed to capture a snapshot of precisely where the band were at the time, something he still firmly believes. Yeah, totally did. I really do. Um, it, you know, I think Kevin Shirley was the right guy to produce the record. He went to capture something raw and pretty much as they played live. Um, he did a great job of that. But more importantly, he didn't really have time to dick around. Um, we had seven days in the studio and he had to record, I think we recorded 13 tracks. Um, two were already done, which was Tomorrow and Pure Massacre. And then he had to record 11 songs in seven days. So, you know, it, it, he didn't have time to mess around. Um, the band set up in... Um, festival, and um, I went down every single night, um, which was, you know, not that much because it was only seven nights. But, um, yeah, no, I went down every day and night um, and then was around the mixing of the record as well. And I do, I think it really did capture um, a real rawness and um, an honesty in, in its presentation and its playing. Um, I think what you hear is what they were. John's offsider at Murmur, Susan Robertson, believes that Frog Stomp not only captured the energy of the band at the time, but also the energy of the era as well. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, it was really representative of where the boys were um, musically at the time. And, uh, you know, they went on to record Frog Stomp, which was lyrically a bit more complex given that they had the experience of Frog Stomp um, lived the experience of Frogstone. But I think, yeah, it really it really captured the boys, their energy, 
I think it captures the energy of their time as well. You know, I don't know how. Um, I think if I don't know how it would go if if a band came out today, a trio of young teenagers. I think people might be a little bit more cynical. I don't know. Maybe they were cynical at the time. I'm sure there were people that were cynical, without doubt. But um, I think basically they were really warmly embraced um, by the music industry in general. I mean, going on tour with the Chili Peppers was uh, was incredible, and I think that that showed that there was a level of respect for the boys in the in the bigger music community. Pure Massacre was released as Frog Stomp's second single on the 13th of January 1995, a couple of weeks after the Frog Stomp sessions wrapped up, and a week later they embarked on the National Big Day Out Tour. Their first festival slots and the shows which would soon consolidate their position as a genuine band to be reckoned with, rather than the novelty act many saw them as. I vividly recall being at the 95 Gold Coast Big Day Out, watching Cosmic Psychos ripping through a typically great mid-afternoon set on a smaller side stage. And about halfway through there a lot of time, my friends and I started noticing we were suddenly surrounded by hordes of, not children, but significantly younger punters, and it took us ages to work out that they were getting in early to get prime spots for the silver chair set which was coming next. After Psycho's finished, we wandered off to get a beer, as you do, and then decided to head back to that stage to see what all the fuss was about. Except by that point, you couldn't get anywhere near the stage anymore, it was as as it was enveloped with young kids absolutely frothing to see their heroes. So my first Silverchair live experience was from a long, long way back and being as much spun out by the mayhem happening in the crowd in front of me as what was coming from the stage. Ben also remembers the big day out sets being chaotic, but admits that this was become pretty much par for the course for the three mates in the band. Um, yeah, I mean, those, those big day, the first big day out we played was particularly crazy. Um, but again, it's, it's really weird because that was just, because that was our reality, like it kind of felt normal in a strange way. Mm. Um, so once we kind of experienced that craziness, like for the rest of that tour, you're like, oh, well, next one's going to be crazy too. Um, and yeah, I think uh, once, you know, touring became more of a normal part of our lives. I guess it just, there was a bit of both. There were some gigs, you know, and they were just like classic gigs. Like you go in, there's a, you know, smelly old black room with sticky carpet <laughs> and, um, you know, people roll in and have a good time and they go. Um, but there was other shows where, you know, there was a bit, there's a bit more manic and just a bit more, a bit more mayhem. Um, but, you know, I, I think, in terms of our live show and, and you know the audiences, we're always extremely lucky with the support and, and always having you know eager people coming to see us. So um, yeah, you know we're very lucky. What, what about live? Was it was it a big jump all of a sudden playing the big crowds? Was that tough for you guys, or did you adapt pretty easily? Yeah, I felt like we did adapt pretty easily. I mean, we. I think one of the one of the things that makes Silverchair so magical is is the alchemy between the band when we play together. Um, you know, it's it's like individually, I think we're all really good musicians, but I think when we come together, that's there's, there's just something about the recipe or the or the, the combination of the three of us together is what makes it special. Um, and I also think when we when we play live, it's like we we have that there's a bit of camaraderie. There's a little bit of like you know a little bit of trust that you've got you know someone that you trust musically kind of playing next to you. So yeah, in terms of live, I think we I think we just kind of I don't know. We just kind of grabbed the ball by the horns and just went for it. We didn't. We didn't really think too much about it. Probably comes back to the, the age thing a little bit, where we weren't worried too much about what anyone thought or or anything. We just kind of we were just doing what we were doing, not really worrying about anybody else. And you know that that probably crossed over to the live stuff as well. In John Watson's mind, the Big Day Out shows weren't just a triumph for their existing fans, but gave the young band a semblance of authenticity for the growing army of skeptics who believed that Silverchair were a surefire flash in the pan. The extraordinary thing about that, and that was a, you know, a great, um, the big day out really changed a lot of things, I think, for, for Silverchair. When they first exploded, um, 
you know, in that last three months of 1994 with the Tomorrow EP, there was still an inevitable question mark of like, is this real or are these some kids that, you know, some guys got in the recording studio and made them sound good, right? So um, Owen's genius was to, you know, convince Ken to put them, Ken Zahara to put them on on um, a smaller stage. So they didn't play the main stage. They played one of the sort of the smaller outside stages, mm-hmm you know, in the middle of the afternoon, and it was absolute pandemonium. You know, there were people um, climbing on top of roofs, stage diving off the top of the stage. You know, there was in Sydney, there's a famous photo of the guy climbing right up a post to be able to try and get a view of them, being like hundreds of feet above. The, it was a real moment. Uh, anybody who was there will never forget it. Um, but those shows also show that the band could play, you know, and so there was an authenticity and a sort of acknowledgement of that, you know, notwithstanding all the strangeness of Courtney Love, who became um, oddly obsessed with Daniel and sort of seemed to talk about him nonstop on stage at all of those gigs, and it all got very strange for a minute there. Um, but there was definitely a, a zeitgeist moment, an undeniable zeitgeist moment happening over that summer of 94, 95, when the band was in the middle of recording or had just finished recording Frogstomp. John O'Donnell was far less blasé about the madness unveiling at the Big Day Out shows. That was what they'd been shooting for all along. And he remembers that the New Zealand show of the tour was even where they stumbled upon the soon iconic frog that would in time grace the Frog Stomp cover. I went down to Ken West's office in probably October and just said, look, we've signed this band. We really, really believe in them. Um, We'll take any spot you'll give us on the big day out. And... He came down and saw them play at a place called the Vulcan Hotel, one of the early Sydney shows, um, and was really impressed. Like, he totally understood what we were trying to achieve and backed us. Um, I think the band got $1,000 a show, so absolute peanuts, and we lost money doing the tour. But, again, it was the best investment ever. Um and, you know, can't thank Ken enough because he saw something there and even if he thought it wouldn't last, um, he saw something there that he knew would create a reaction. But he put them on, you know, probably that was the Triple Z stage, <laughs> um, you know, and it was the Triple R stage in Melbourne and it was, you know, they played in the late afternoon. There was no headline spot or anything like that. They just went on and did their thing. And by then, you know, the word had caught on. And at least they were a freak show that everyone wanted to get to see, to have their own opinion on. And that's all we wanted too, that we just wanted people to see them before they had too many expectations and see that they were a real band. Fantastic. And, um, yeah, no, and so and that continued into um, the setup for Frog Stomp and um, – I was the person in – Daniel was staying at John Watson's place and pulled out an old obscure record and saw a title on this record, and the title was Frog Stomp, and he really loved the word. Um, so he called up Chris and Ben, and they'd kind of named the album um, in their heads in late January. And I went over to um, the big day out in New Zealand – with the band, and I remember um, being at the venue and there was a a truck went past and it had this incredible photo of a frog. And I said, that's the frog. (laughs) I found the frog. It's going to fit perfectly with the name Frog Stomp. And um, so I came back and, as you had to do, you couldn't Google things in those days. So I had to look up the name of the company who had the truck that had this frog on the side um, and then find out where they got the photo from and then I had to um, negotiate with the um, the rights holder to the photo um, and get the rights to use the photo on an album cover, which was um, quite a difficult task in as it played out. I thought it would be reasonably easy, but it um, was owned by somebody who didn't want to part with ownership, so we had to do and in perpetuity license and um, and so they still own the photo but we had licensed it off them for use on an album cover um, but yeah and I drove up 
to, you know, and got the art direction started with a guy called Kevin Williams. And, um, and I remember driving up to Newcastle numerous times with different designs um, to show the band. Again, you couldn't really email things through in those days, so I had to drive from Sydney to Newcastle numerous times to catch them when they got home from school and then be back on the road in the evening. <laughs> and, you know, those kinds of things. But, um, yeah, they were all part of the excitement that was going on, um, you know, in the setup of the album. And then, of course, you know, the album came out. We'd had, um, we were six weeks at number one in Australia with um, Tomorrow and then came with um, Pure Massacre as the second single um, ahead of the album release. And I think that peaked at number two in Australia. Um, and then we went into Israel Sun and other songs. So the platform was set pretty nicely for Frog Stomp to be birthed into the world, and it eventually came out on the 27th of March, 1995. It was certified gold four days later, and a few days after that, the charts came out and Silverchair had become the first ever Australian band to debut at number one on the album charts with their debut album. It stayed on top for three consecutive weeks, but the fact that it happened at all in that era of massive album sales is remarkable. Ben reckons that the band weren't really too fussed about these milestones. After all, by then pretty much everything in their life was vaguely surreal. Yeah, I do remember the day our manager, um, one of the Johns, told us that the album went to number one. I think we may have been, I remember being in an airport. I can't remember what airport, if we are in Australia or overseas. Um, but we were kind of not overly phased by it. We were excited, but... We were, at the time, we were kind of riding such a big wave and, you know, the, the tornado of everything else that was going on around it was just so intense that um, I guess we just didn't stop to smell the roses. We were kind of like just, you know, we were just getting through, like, everything else that was going on at the time. Um, it probably wasn't until afterwards, you know, when you've got a bit more perspective that you can turn around and go, Wow, that was a pretty, pretty unique and a pretty amazing achievement, you know, to turn that around. And I mean, who, who knows how long it was, you know, from the time we won the TV competition to recording tomorrow to making the album to number one. Like it was, it wasn't a very long period. It all happened, you know, it probably all happened within six months. So you know, you're on kind of one trajectory for your life, and then all of a sudden you just kind of catapult on this whole other um, this whole other track. Inevitably such massive and immediate success comes with its own unique set of drawbacks and challenges. John Watson remembers being thrilled by Silverchair's early victories, but also being acutely aware that management would be kept busy staving off the dreaded tall poppy syndrome. So tomorrow had been number one for six weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, Pure Massacre got stranded at number two for about the same length of time. I can't listen to the Cranberries zombie to this day <laughs> uh, because it kept uh, it kept Pure Massacre out of number one. Um, and uh, I can remember when tomorrow went to number one, and it was Ben's birthday party. Um, they'd gone so it must have been so Ben's must have been October when it went to number one, um, and. Uh, it was Ben's birthday party there at the local Pizza Hut, as you would be, <laughs> and we called them to tell them that, you know, the EP had, had debuted at number one. They were like, oh, hell, okay, great. Well, we're going to go back to the pizzas now. Um, it was, you know, there you would never have met an artist for whom commercial success meant less, you know. They loved playing shows. They loved being around shows, getting to go on the big day out and, you know, become friendly with the offspring and, you know, jump on stage with the cult in Perth and all of that kind of stuff. They loved all of that, um, but you know all of the other trappings just meant it, you know it's the old line about you know as meaningful as a bicycle is to a fish. Um, <laughs> they just they just didn't it, it had no um, relevance to their world. It wasn't what they were doing it for. So from you know the standpoint of everybody around them, you ended up feeling very protective because um, you know there was all this huge commercial success, but it wasn't what they were doing it for, and it had the opportunity to be a fire that burned out of control, you know, in that classic Australian way, 
while there were lots of people that loved them, there were also probably many more people that hated them and resented them. You know, they were Nirvana in pajamas. They were, you know, kindergarten, not what was it, you know, not Soundgarden, kindergarten or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of that kind of backlashy stuff that came as well. And the answer really for them was playing shows. So getting out and letting people see that they could play tended to shut people up. So, yeah, when Frogstorm came out sometime around the Easter of, of 95 in that March-April period, um, you know, they did a national tour and playing sort of surf festivals and things like that, did some really major shows. Um, and, you know, the crowds were huge and manic and they had clearly um, struck a, a, a deep and profound chord with their own generation. You know, when they played on stage, looking out at the audience, um, it was like they were sort of looking in a mirror. You know, there were all these other 15, 16-year-old kids um, who, for whom this music really spoke to them. I think probably the reason why the podcast will get a listenership now, it will largely be those kids for whom, you know, Shade or Pill Massacre said out loud the stuff they were feeling and couldn't articulate, you know. And it's very easy for an older person to perhaps turn up their nose, you know, and at, at the poetry of it and go, oh, it's a bit, you know, a little bit childlike or a bit simplistic, but it's honest and it's raw and it's real and that's why it spoke to people. And I don't, I, you know, I think that's what good art is. And we'll leave episode two of Rewind's Frog Stomp podcast with an anecdote from producer Kevin Shirley, who remembers not only being delighted by Frog Stomp's critical and commercial reception, but also being relieved that he'd got to make the album at all, given a past indiscretion involving Sony management. No, it wasn't surreal. I mean, I'd done a, I'd had a few, yeah, a few number one records, or you know, already. Um, you know, for I mean, for ten years I'd been making records already, so. You know, I'd had a couple of number one records and, but yeah, you're always, I mean, I always love it. You know, you love, I love it when things are doing well and when you start hearing them on the radio and, and, um, but you know, I'm pretty, honestly, I'm, I'm pretty level about it. I mean, I'm, it comes out, you know, six months to a year after you finish it. So you have kind of a, a you're slightly removed from it at that point. You're working on something else or else you're struggling to pay the bills one way or the other. So. You know, and then you don't see any money from it for y- yonks. I mean, you don't see any money from it for years, no matter how much it sells. So it's kind of sold through the roof, and you still like have to wait till everyone decides whether it's recouped its cost, which of course would do in no time. And then it takes you know a year to get paid anything. But you know, I, then I got paid and I and I bought a, 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 a unit with it, so that worked out pretty good. One of the things that was weird about making the record, which I didn't know at the time, which the Johns will tell you, is that I had made a faux pas at a Sony recording, and I had inadvertently kicked out the head of Sony. So he had sent down um, a note saying no one is to work with Kevin Shirley because he's a fucking asshole. And I didn't know about this. And so when the Johns came to record this thing and they wanted me to do it, they knew they had to sort of do it kind of under the radar a little bit. And um, and I guess that's why we didn't go and record it at Sony. I mean, I, I suppose, I don't even don't know, but anyway, we recorded it on a weekend and then we mixed the song and then they went and played it at the conference up at Hamilton Island or something like that. And then everyone applauded and uh, the boss said, oh, that's cool. Who produced that? And they said sort of nonchalantly, oh, that was Kevin Shirley. And everyone <laughs> applauded. And I think he was left going not, not very happy. Was it an accident that you'd kicked him out of another session or something? Yeah, yeah, I had been doing a song with another band, and I thought, oh, it was a big, had a big sing-along chorus. So I said, why don't we get everyone from Sony to come down and sing it? And so they all came down to sing. And there was this one voice in there that was just tragic, and I said to him, I'm sorry, sir, this is a phone call for you. So he left the room, and then I had them sing it. And then it was, I guess he, I embarrassed him, but I hadn't meant to at all. I actually didn't know who he was. I didn't realize he, <laughs> I had no idea he was the big boss. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. <laughs> anyway, he was he was pissed at me. 
To this day, I don't think I've met him. Actually, I don't do much work for Sony. I think they, they, uh, I said, yeah. Not everyone loves the caveman. So there you go. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rewind with Steve Bell. In the next and final episode, we'll continue to look at the genesis of Silverchair's Frog Stomp album, specifically how the band parlayed their Aussie success into overseas victories, the crazy adventures this prompted, and the madness of the 95 RE Awards, which topped off the album cycle. If you have enjoyed listening, please rate and review this podcast through your favourite platform or podcast app, and we'll catch you next time. You've been listening to Rewind with Steve Bell, produced by Craig Trewick and Andrew Mast. Recorded and engineered by Zig Parker of Green Room Sydney for the Handshake Agency.